The following Art Trap production is brought to you by the Gallifrey Embassy and has been made possible by donations from listeners like you. Live from the Celestial Toy Chest, it's Doctor Who Podshock. Doctor Who Podshock. Okay, well, let's do it now. I <laughs> you know, whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program, with Louis Trapani, Hello. Ken Deep, Hello. James Norton, Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock, from the Gallifrey Embassy and Outpost Gallifrey. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah, look who's that. <laughs> I'm the Doctor, and who are you? Outpost Gallifrey presents Doctor Who, Podshock, episode 115, or 115, whichever you prefer. This is Louis Trapani, and um, we're here for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who, Podshock. Ken will be joining me later in a, in a segment in this episode. We're going to be wrapping up uh, our coverage of Gallifrey 19, which was this past February of 2008. We're all excited and set for Gallifrey 20, which is coming up shortly uh, in February of 2009. We hope to see you there. We're going to be there doing another live show and um, upping the ante and doing more coverage there than we did even last year. Well, this year, I should say. But we're not done with this year yet. <laughs> And to that end, in this episode, we have interviews with Robert Sherman, and we also have an interview with uh, Dan Harris, who does the Doctor Who Sea Cruise and the Sci-Fi Sea Cruise as well. So uh, stay tuned for that. We also have Marissa on board, who is reviewing David Tennant in his role as, no, not the Doctor, but Hamlet. Well, you knew where I was going with that, didn't you? Anyway, some um, other news on the Doctor Who front. Um, we have... Well, we there was this. The Sun had reported. I'm not going to give anything away, <laughs> because if it is true, it's a major, major um, spoiler. But we don't even know if it's true. Uh, the we will say the BBC, uh, according to Digital Spy, the BBC has denied it. Uh, but it concerns a rumor or speculation or an article that they had written concerning a particular actor appearing in one of the specials in the 2009 series. And that's all I'll say. If you want to know more, go to go to our site, gallifreyandembassy.org or podshock.net. will bring you to the same place. And there's an article about it as well as a thread. And um, there's a link there to the Sun article if you really want to find out more about it. But I'm sure, you know what, by uh, the time you're listening to this, probably news has already spread out and you probably already heard, you know, <laughs> the the groundbreaking news that occurred this week, which um has been denied by the BBC supposedly. So um you know <laughs> everyone's joking. Well, therefore it must be true. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll see. We'll see. You know, sometimes the sun gets it right and sometimes it gets it wrong. But without further ado, let's go on and move ahead with this episode of Doctor Who Podshock, and we're gonna start the ball rolling with an interview with Robert Sherman coming up right after this. This is Deborah Watson, and you are listening to Doctor Who Pod Shock. Philip K. Dick hit the madness years, come over to the Starship sofa. You want to find out why it took us three episodes and drove us mad? Then you can also check it out. Find out why Alfred Bester was the man who bridged the gap between the Pulp Fiction and New Wave. And if you're ever interested in a top female in science fiction, welcome aboard. If your cup of tea is science fiction classic films, we have them here. Dark Star, Capricorn One. And all cyberpunk enthusiasts out there, John Brummer was your leader. Come over and find out all about him on the Starship Sofa. We are the Pete and Dud of the science fiction world. Welcome to the Starship Sofa. 
I'd just like to point out that we are not Anton Deck, we are not Pete and Dud, we're not Derek and Clive. That's just what people have sent to us in email. www.starshipsofer.com Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. back with Doctor Who Podshock and as promised our um, first segment up is a interview that I had with Robert Sherman at Gallifrey 19. Robert and I sat down and I had the honor and privilege of, of speaking with him. He's a great gentleman and um, uh, a, a good fellow and I think you'll enjoy this interview. So here we go. Robert Sherman, Doctor Who writer, Gallifrey 19, February 2008. Joining me right now is uh, Rob Sherman. Hello, hi. Uh, and for those that um, that aren't familiar with Rob's work, uh, most of you probably know he did episode six in the 2005 series, uh, series one of Doctor Who, um, Dalek was yep, the episode title. that's right. And before that, you had worked on several other projects, including some big finish. Yeah, half a dozen big finishes, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems odd because they sort of, it sounds silly, but they sort of merge into one. There was that. There was a tremendous burst of activity when I was just writing Big Finish script after Big Finish script, and I mean, tremendously happy period actually because it was. It, it seems funny. I mean, back then, um, I remember when Gary Russell first asked me to write a Big Finish, and he knew he knew I was a writer for radio, for BBC Radio, and I've been a fan for well since the early eighties, and the idea of contributing to Doctor Who in any form whatsoever. Mm-hmm just made me so happy and I remember writing this script called The Hoagie Terror um, thinking this would be my one and only contribution mm-hmm. to Doctor Who and just throwing everything in that I possibly could just because thinking well I'll never do this again you know mm-hmm. this is actually too much like a sort of dream job then having done that not really leaving it for the next five six years I mean it wasn't really until Dalek wrapped mm-hmm. that I felt a break from Doctor Who could be taken mm-hmm. it was odd you know I I'd sort of found that I was I remember by the end of my big finish time, I was thinking, it's about time I stopped doing this for a while because I'm beginning to say the same stories again and again. And then that, about a couple of months after that is when Julie Gardner phoned up and said, oh, do you want to be on the new series of Doctor Who? Which is only really one answer, actually. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you say yes very, very eagerly. But it did mean that I think it was about five years and, and, and my wife, bless her heart, was just saying, this Doctor Who thing's never going to end, is it? So, um, yeah. Well, there's an awful lot of Doctor Who history suddenly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the passion that you have for the series shows, and the dedication oh, yeah. is there. Oh, so. I, I absolutely love the show. It's, yeah. it's a show which, you know, I, I was saying to somebody upstairs a while ago that, for once in a while, I still get the old flashback of sitting in my, in my, in my house when I was 11 years old and writing out lists of all the Doctor Who stories in order, which I got from. Jean-Marc Officier's Doctor Who program sure. guide and, and beginning to memorise them. I mean, I can still do mm-hmm. that. I mean, if I can't sleep at night, I, I lie in bed. This is terribly sad. And I recite An Unearthly Child right through to now to Voyage of the Damned in order That's until impressive. I fall asleep. It's not very impressive. It's actually terribly <laughs> stupid. But it's that thing which I, I remember just... And once in a while, you know, even now I'm 38 and I can suddenly remember that feeling of, of, of innocence, mm-hmm. of just knowing that there's, there's this vast show out there, yeah. um, which I would never ever, under, I, I never knew what would happen with Guru from the Deep, it just sounded great. Mm-hmm. I would see these story titles and think, well, I wonder who Victor Pemberton was. And yeah, suddenly to find that you were part of that, you know, mm-hmm. didn't have to give anything back at all. Yeah. It's just, it was just incredible. Now, when you did do Dalek and yeah. the first episode, I know that was a tough, uh, story to write because the Daleks were on, they were, they were off. Yeah, I, well, yes, 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 that's, that's right. Although, I mean, in some ways, I think that the problem with that was that that was the one which got all the publicity. I mean, when you're doing a TV show, and what became obvious, because I wasn't really, I hadn't done much television, but, but every writer on that show went through 
um, a number of drafts in which the stories changed. And I was the only one who got the fact that their story had changed somewhat in the, the national press mm -hmm. and just because of the Daleks. Yeah. But I remember, you know, Mark would, I mean, Mark worked very hard on Unquiet Dead and, mm -hmm. you know, Paul on Father's Day leapt through certain hoops and, you know, and, and again, that was always such an engaging mm -hmm. process. I actually thought, I mean, I, I, it sounds silly now, but, but when we lost the Daleks, and Russell came up with a new monster, which has now been seen in the show, I, the uh, Toxophane. Mm -hmm. um, I think it helped my script immeasurably. I was forced to write a, a, a version of Dalek without relying upon the iconic Dalek, mm -hmm. so that it had to work on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And it actually, in some ways, I know it sounds silly, but it would have been a good thing to do anyway, just to have said for one draft, you know what, the Daleks are in the script, but try doing it without them, just to see mm -hmm. if it works. And I think we made it work, you know, it became a lot funnier and edgier and Van Staten became something more of a villainous character rather than a sort of fairly bland, nebulous character to begin with, I think. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, yes, it, it wasn't necessarily very easy, but it, but it wasn't unique. It was mm -hmm. just the one which got all the publicity. So. There was a lot of people who had made a comparison to Jubilee with that. Oh, yeah, Dallas. yes. So there, well, it's something. the same story, essentially, yeah. yeah. And, but you didn't get any of it. For, uh, Paul Carnell was a good friend of ours. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I know we've spoken with him about some of the... Um, and we're sure it's a minority, you know, when he did Human Nature. Yes. And, uh, you know, yeah. this whole canon thing, what's, you know, that it's... Oh, I don't worry about that. Yeah. No, so I mean, you, yeah. you didn't suffer any of that during, you, um, you know, that first No, I mean, series. although actually, I, I think in some ways, I mean, I, mean I, I a lot of fans tell me, that, and I think they're right, I think it's very easy to reconcile Dalek and Jubilee if you want to. I don't think... I think mm -hmm. Human Nature's harder. I think it's harder to sort of say that, that there are these two separate adventures yeah. for Sylvester and for David in which... They both end up uh, as a headmaster of a, no, not a headmaster, but as a teacher of, of, mm -hmm. of a boarding school on the eve of the First World War. Um, I think Dalek and Jubilee, what happened was, I mean, Dalek was obviously commissioned because we had to bring back the Daleks. And I think, I, I think actually very, very bravely, um, Julie actually hit on it. She said that to bring them back, bring back one, to demonstrate how how important one was, so that when mm. in Bad Wolf they came back at the yeah. end of that on mass, that really had an impact. Yeah. Because if one was such trouble, you if, know, if all these thousands the and millions. The alien, the yeah, 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 the exactly. Aliens, yeah, where the first one establishes how how dangerous one alien is. Precisely. So yeah. it's sort but, of that but, thing. But the thing is, is that therefore Dalek and Jubilee were completely at at reverse because Dalek was a therefore story, trying to reintroduce what Daleks were. Mm -hmm to a new audience, whereas Jubilee's entire premise was really, obviously because it was written for a fan audience, was saying, okay, let's remember that what Daleks stand for has become um, belittled and made fun of over the years. I mean, I mean, certainly in Britain we were having things like Daleks advertising chocolate biscuits. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they had been in the 60s, they'd been... I mean, these had represented Nazis, and now, and it's not unlike other things. I, I, th I think if you ignore evil for long enough, and and you make it safer and yeah. make it trite, and I want so Jubilee was about that. Jubilee mm. was about saying, um, let's actually send up the Dalek so we can actually cruelly pull pull the rug under. Sure. Dalek was in some some ways the the, uh, the reverse, but with a similar storyline. So mm. that again, there was this one Dalek stuck in a cell, which actually made it quite tricky. I, mean, I remember Russell saying very early on that there's a sequence in Jubilee where the, um, where the president, I think it's president, I can't remember now, um, what they do is they boil the Dalek mm -hmm. and, and the juice that runs off, mm -hmm. they, they mark it as Dalek juice and it's the, it, it's the taste of victory. I mean, it's a, it's a mm -hmm. ridiculous, stupid joke. And Russell loved that because, mm -hmm. because Russell's taste can be somewhat <laughs> yeah. disgusting. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, although he loved it, there's no way to put that in because the whole point is is that, you know, it, it's about over-familiarity, Jubilee, yeah. and yeah. Dalek is about no one knowing anything. So it was, it was odd. It, it was a nice reversal. Mm -hmm. So I think they're doing two different things, yeah. really. Well, the, the way we saw it and the way we kind of expressed it to Paul was um, it's... Big Finish has its audience, and yeah. it's it, as good as it is. It's it's limited to a certain degree, and if you have well, a good yeah, story, bound to be. yeah, sure. 
it shouldn't go to waste. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be denied the general release of. It's, it's as if an author writes a, a, a book and it's and it's denied to be made a movie because the, it exists yeah. as a book. So why not? Sure. I mean, you know, the, the, the only sad medium. thing. It's the only sad thing I've ever found about. Um, I think that the, that the new adventures are, generally speaking, I mean, you know, there are individual ones that I don't like, and I'm sure, you know, that's. You know that other people would find different books as well. I didn't like very much, but I think as a range, the new adventures and the, and the big Finnish audios, I think there's some tremendous Doctor Who in there, and actually better than the classic series very often. Mm -hmm. But what you miss out on is the sense when I was a fan back in the 80s is that there was a shared unity of what mm -hmm. we saw as Doctor Who. It didn't matter uh, whether or not you liked Time in the Rani or Monster of Peladon, both mm -hmm. of which I'm afraid I don't. Oh my <laughs> God, no. But the thing is, is that we all knew what they are. Whereas it didn't. Whereas spare parts, which is you know Mark Platt's brilliant mm -hmm. Cyberman sure. story, or, or well, you know, Times of Midnight, you know, which has gone down well. Doesn't matter whether people like it or not. If um, because you go, nevertheless, you would go to a convention, and only a small percentage of people would actually have that shared fandom. Mm -hmm. And I think what's lovely about the new series coming back is that we now accept. I mean, we all have an opinion. Mm -hmm. about Rose. We all have an opinion about End of the World, Unquiet Dead, because yeah. we have all seen it. Whereas even the best Big Finish audios, even mm -hmm. the best Doctor Who books, were only ever going to be enjoyed by a very small percentage, who might actually then never enjoy them again anyway. I mean, I've, I, although I've read The New Adventures, I can't remember the plots of more than maybe a handful, mm -hmm. because you forget. Yeah. Whereas the TV show, for better or for worse, I know minutiae details which I'm embarrassing about. Stories I don't even like. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. So you know, yeah. it's, it's it's odd. That's that's what Big Finish represents in some ways. I think it was very very great storytelling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was all it, it was always known it was going to be for that niche audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were very grateful for it. I mean, it bridged oh, the God, gap yeah, yeah. when there was no new Doctor Who coming out, and this was really new material. Um, I know yes. we had gotten word that that some of the sales have kind of dipped down now that the new series. I think that's out. inevitable, really. But, yeah. I yeah, mean, I, and also I suspect you know, and um, I mean, I'm not some sort of marketing expert, but I suspect that part of the difficulty also is that they have reached over 100 releases. And I think when you see number 100 on a spine, any fans coming in, I mean, certainly I'm a completist fan. Mm -hmm. um, that was always what I was like. You know, when I bought the Target novelizations as a kid, I wanted them all. I wanted every Target mm -hmm. book. I wanted all the new adventures when they came out. Someone coming into, the, into Big Finish now, I wonder whether they'll say, well, it's 100 and something, I won't even start then. You know, yeah, if I can't have them all, I don't want them, and I can't have them all because it will cost me the price of a house. Yeah. So I think that that was going to happen. I, I think that to be at the beginning, I mean, actually, I mean, I've been so lucky with my Doctor Who writing because I was in at the beginning of two exciting things. I was, I was in on the first year of Big Finish, mm -hmm. which was so such a brilliant bit of excitement. Sure. I mean, we were so... It's hard to remember now in some ways just how much we were all bursting with... Mm -hmm. um, just the sheer passion of having Doctor Who drama again. And to be part of that, you know, to be doing Holy Terror was really incredible. And then later on, to be on the first season of, of the revival. And again, to see how that unfolded. Yeah. To be at that very first read-through where Chris Eccleston played the Doctor and Biggie Piper was Rose. Oh, I, I sat there and I thought, I'm part of Doctor Who's history. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I did. I thought, you know, and we all sat, I mean, Mark and Stephen and... And Paul, we were all there together, mm -hmm. you know. And, and what was lovely is that we all became very, very close on it. Yeah. We, um, on, on other TV shows I've worked on, writers hate each other. We, yeah. we, it's very, very competitive. What was great about Doctor Who is that we were all mates, and mm -hmm. we would go over to each other's houses to watch the episodes they were broadcast. Mm -hmm. And That's great. and you know, yeah, and, and I mean the, the the story that people perhaps already know, but. We all went out to celebrate when we got commissioned. Yeah. I think we, that that comes through. Like yeah. if you watch the Doctor Who confidentials at the time, uh, I, I think yeah. there was one confidential where I think you were all out for lunch or something, and there was talking the, about each other's stories and joking around. There and was the Chula. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And we had a bet. I mean, yeah. Stephen Moffat won because Stephen <laughs> Moffat wins everything. Um, I mean, that, I mean, that Stephen Moffat's. Obvious, obviously, his job in life is to win everything he possibly can. And is he, that and Hugo he, Moffat? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, Steve and I have won two Hugo's Moffat. You go over to his house, actually. I went over to his house last to see Time Crash, and he was there, and he was showing them off, and I thought, yeah, yeah, but, but are you as happy as I am? Actually, yes, he probably is. Mm. He's probably a very happy man, I think, yeah. But, yeah. but that was actually what was so great about it, was that sense that we were all 
on Big Finish as well. What I loved about Big Finish was that we were we, we became all very good friends. We yeah. were we were sharing ideas. It's and definitely a sense of family, and that yeah, shows, it's, it's that wonderful. Shows here, it shows. I mean, well, that's well, that's Doctor Who for yeah. you. I mean, I mean, Doctor. Who, I mean, obviously, you, you go onto the internet sometimes, and you think that it's nothing but but one big fight. But actually, when you meet Doctor Who fans, mm -hmm. and this goes you know way back to when I was a kid going to conventions in the early eighties, sure. there's there's a sense of I mean, we we are bonded yeah. by a love for a program that actually we that, that that we have a great nostalgia for, as well as as a very immediate reaction mm -hmm. to for the new series, but also that we recognise is is faintly ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too. I mean, having been a fan since yeah. the early '80s as well, and and going to these conventions here in the U.S. where you had uh, Patrick Trout and John oh, yeah. Pertwee together. Yeah. Uh, when Colin Baker came on board, they all got along. There were no rivalry. Oh, it, 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 it it's was actually it's one of one of the nicest things. Yeah. Uh, on the night that Dalek went out, um, I had a phone call, and it was uh, uh, Annika Wills oh. mm -hmm. called me up to say she got my number. She was at a convention, and I didn't, you know, someone there knew my number, and, she, and she'd seen it on a screen. She phoned to say, "Welcome to the family." Mm. And nice. I, th and you know, part of me just thought, I'm in the same Doctor Who family now as Polly. Yeah. You know, who um, I remember. Watch, you know, reading novelizations of. I remember reading Doctor Who and the Cybermen by Jerry Davis, and thinking, you know, cocktail Polly. And here she was on the phone to me saying that we were now part of the yeah. same series. Welcome yeah. and, and they've all been like that. I mean, I mean, you go to conventions and everyone is. I mean, I mean, I'm still scared of them because I'm a Doctor Who fan, <laughs> and deep down it seems weird to me that I'm now able to sit on the same table and chat as if you know as if we we're on the same thing to, to old doctors but i do and they're all fantastic it's, well, it's it's lovely i know we all appreciate you being part of the show being part oh, of the gallifrey conventions it's, oh it's a joy i mean and, and of course you know it's a massive ego boost you know wow. you uh, i mean i mean I, I i mustn't pretend otherwise it's you uh, come here and people people make you feel that you people remind you mm -hmm that you contributed to something which was incredibly special and it's easy to forget that sometimes yeah. because you know it, it's a job also it was it was you know it was a few years ago and yet you come here and people thank you mm -hmm. and i mean how who could not want that who, who yeah. could not want to be to be reminded of of actually something that yeah. was so joyous but i mean from from what i see from you you're very grounded down to earth and you know you well still i mean stay. i'm i'm a fan and um I, I, I was a fan who, I was a terribly nervous fan. Um, I have a stammer, which I try and cover up as much as I possibly can. And then, yes. Well, I'm, I'm older now, but certainly when I was younger, I mean, I, I'd go to convention. I remember interviewing Terence Dix for a fanzine uh, with a friend of mine, and we'd sat there, and I, I, it, was the, it was the peak of my stammer, and Terence would sit there patiently as I would stammer out, I mean, so difficult, um, asking him about, Doctor Who and the Time Warrior, or whatever I was asking him. Mm -hmm. And I now meet fans, and they come up to me, and they're very shy of me. For God's sake, me. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan too. And I just feel that, you know, the least I can do is, is, is remind them. And mm -hmm. I do. I, I, I tell them, you know, that I'm only a fan. I mean, I'm only a fan who got lucky. I mean, my, my job happened to dovetail wonderfully, you know, into mm -hmm. actually being able to predict, to be part of the show that I, that I love. Their, their jobs may not, mm -hmm. but I'm no better, mm -hmm. and I'm no more accomplished than they are. I just happen to have been on Doctor Who as well, yeah. as well as loving it, which mm -hmm. is which is tr you know terrific. Well, you know it, that's great because it eases them and, and it, it, yeah, and you know and, and people are great here. You know you um, you just you, do, you it's about making friends. Yeah. You know I mean fandom yeah. is a very very friendly place. Yeah. Well, you know what? I this is my first time coming to. I'm from New York, and it's mm -hmm. the first time me making this trip three thousand miles to come to Gallifrey. Well, that's a pretty good, you know. Yeah, and it's like uh, instant commitment. family here. You know, it's, it's it wonderful. is it is, isn't it? Because yeah. I didn't do overseas conventions really mm -hmm. until, well, I suppose the heyday of Big Finish onwards. And yeah, and you know, I think I remember when I first came to Gallifrey, which was about two thousand and two or so, mm -hmm. and I flew out there just thinking, I'm off to Los Angeles. And I'm thinking it sounded terribly smart and, and posh and, and how impressive, and I could boast about it. And I come here now mainly because I like to see old friends, yeah. and I like to make new ones, mm -hmm. and I get, I feel like a better, and it sounds silly, I feel, I feel like a better person because I'm a writer, and I'm miserable often because a lot of writers are miserable, and I sit at home, and I, you know, I tackle scripts and stories I'm writing, and I snap at my wife, and I, and I, and I kick the cat, 
And I come here and I feel actually like, yeah, I mean, this is, it, it's all for something. Mm -hmm. And I can be, you know, part of that, of that big family again. And I'm uh, glad you are. Thank you. And yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And hopefully, um, I hope we haven't seen the last of you on. on um, I hope not. I mean, as I say, it, it sounds silly. Um, I, mean, I, I, I was an idiot, actually. I mean, what happened after Doctor Who was that I, I, I was so tired of it. I mean, I, I'm not tired of Doctor Who, but I think I got a bit, a bit scared of it, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and I also thought, I mean, I, I, I was... It, it's hard, I mean, particularly now, it, because, it's, because it's happened, everyone takes it for granted. But when you bear in mind that, as a fairly inexperienced television writer, Russell T. Davis asked me to do what at that stage was the Radio Times cover episode of mm -hmm. the new series, which he, could, which, he, which he could have done himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, had Russell said to me, you know, I like the idea of this, can we, can we use this idea? I'd have said yes. I wouldn't have thought I, that I should have got to write it. Um, having done all that, I, I, I got scared of it, actually. I mean, I, I, I wasn't sure. I didn't know that the show would ever come back. I spent. A, I, I think I worry too much as a writer, anyway. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think more so then than I do now. I I I think we all did a bit. Um, not Russell, perhaps, but I know that Paul and Mark and Stephen. We would have conversations saying, "What if we're the ones who kill it? What if we don't do a good job? If we don't get this first series working, we will be the ones who make sure it never comes back. This is its last chance." Mm -hmm. The Phillips, you know, the uh, uh, Paul McGann movie. The Philip Siegel thing sure. didn't take off. Mm -hmm. I thought at the time that was on. I thought, well, that, that's it then. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they they have blown that, and that was our that was our one chance of mm -hmm. revival. This I thought, well, this is the last chance of revival yeah. at that time. Mm -hmm. And I spent the entire year I was on the show, in some ways, never accepting how great it was. And um, and then I worried that you know how whatever I did afterwards. I mean, how can you top? Doing the, the the Dalek episode yeah, with the Radio yeah. Times cover. When when Dalek was transmitted, did um, yeah. afterwards did Terry Nation Estate contact you in any way? Oh yeah, I, I mean, I, I, like a nods up and say good job. Oh, it was that. nicer than that. Yeah. Um, I I met Tim Hancock on set. We got on very well actually. I think partly because we wore a very very similar leather jacket. <laughs> well, that sounds silly, but we sort of bonded over mm -hmm. our jackets. Um, he said something very nice to me because obviously he'd read the script. He said, you know, he said that Uncle Terry because he because he regarded Terry Nation as family, um, it, Uncle Terry would just have loved all this. Mm -hmm. And that meant a lot to me because, yeah. you know, it, it, it's that thing where you're also aware that, that you have a duty, I mean, not just to fandom, but, but to the people who, who, you know, brilliantly created yeah. this yeah. thing years and years ago. Um, I, I, I tried very hard. It, it was funny, you know, BBC interviewers would interview me about Daleks climbing stairs. And I would always try and tell them that, in fact, actually, the first mention was, was probably in Revelation of the Dykes when Davros was seen to hover. Then, then remembers. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not a good soundbite; you get yeah, cut. Yeah. But I, I, I always wanted to try and, well, I, I, I tell myself at least, I am walking in the the footsteps of others, particularly with the Daleks. I got a bit jealous of the others actually at times because. You know, Mark was off creating the uh, uh, Gelf and right. Paul with his Reapers and mm. Stephen Muffet with his, you know, gas mask kid <laughs> and are you my mummy, yeah. <laughs> and now I was with a Dalek and I, I sort of felt, well, whatever else they've got, they've got something which is entirely theirs, really. And I've got, you know, I mean, it sounds silly, um, but part but of there's me... never been a, a Dalek story, I mean, with the exception of Jubilee, but there's never well, been a Dalek no. story before that that was televised that was like that. I mean, no, um, a unique Dalek story to the screens. Sure, but I suppose, I think they all, they all have been afterwards, really. I, I, I think that that's... That the idea of characterising a Dalek in that way had to be done. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've, I've been... I, I did an interview recently for BBC Radio which about my new book, and I was... You know, I wasn't going to say it to them, but I was ridiculously overpraised for, for the genius idea of making a Dalek lead character have dialogue. Well, of course it would. Um, that's just self-evident. I mean, I think anybody who brought back the Daleks for the, for the 21st century, whether they were fans or not, you would go back to that first principle. If you're going to say in your, in your big series arc, as Russell was doing, these are the creatures that caused the Doctor to destroy his home planet, they would not become um, creatures that just speak one word. Mm -hmm. they, they, they would have conversation, sure. and they had to be clever. 
So yeah, it, but but I enjoyed all that. I mean, I mean, I mean that was great. I mean, I, I, as I say, I think I got, I think I I got very lucky, the fact that I was there, and I think it was so well done. I mean, the thing about Dalek, which you know, I don't watch it very often because that would be weird, but I think that it's the episode in which I mean, Chris Eccleston is so good in that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, there's an instance early on. There's that scene where he first meets the Dalek. Which I think is a really great scene, and it's great because of Chris and because mm -hmm. of Nick Briggs. Sure. Um, because I think it, if you if you read it, it 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 reads fine. It reads like a fairly standard Dalek Doctor confrontation. The Doctor is being a bit arch, maybe. I can I can hear Colin Baker doing it. It's mm -hmm. a similar thing in Jubilee. Mm -hmm. Chris, who's not a Doctor Who fan, approached the script as a script, and said to Nick Briggs, he said, "You know what I think? I think this is a Holocaust survivor." meeting one of the old Nazis sure. and it's full of it's filled with that with that rage and that fear mm -hmm. and it when I first saw it I thought my god what is Chris doing with this it's I mean it's extraordinary but it's not but it's a lot better I think than I had in mind mm -hmm. and that's Chris I mean Chris is so good in Dalek and Billy is so good in Dalek and Nick is, and Joe Ahern which mm -hmm. we just did a fantastic job directing it I was so proud watching it I mm -hmm. think it's I think it's, I think it's a gorgeous production. Yeah. When you, and you can't tell. I mean, I mean, when you write something, when you write a stage play or you write a TV episode, you don't know how lucky you're going to get. And I think I was incredibly lucky with Dalek. Right. Um, you had mentioned um, your current book. Can you share that? Yeah, with yeah. I, I certainly will, if only so that they might buy it. Um, yes, it's it's odd actually. I've not really written much prose before. It's a book called uh, called Tiny Deaths. It's a collection of very odd short stories. Um, Sort of, I, I suppose they're sort of sci-fi-ish. They, I don't know. Um, I think it's actually what's called slipstream. I'm told, mm -hmm. which is sort of a, a bit like off-kilter mm -hmm. sci-fi. It's not spaceships and things, but it, but it's sort of looking at the world from a slightly skewed point sort of view. Of like yeah, I think I, that's that's not a bad way of looking at it. I mean, I mean, not not, not with great twists in, but mm -hmm. but I mean, stories, for example, like um, oh, I don't know, uh, about um, a girl who's run over and then reincarnated at her grieving mother's ashtray. Mm. So you see it from her point of view. So she's there to see sure. and she sees how the grief mm. uh, maps out and eventually sure. she gives up smoking because she's got over her her daughter's death, which of course the daughter's witness to. Or a story about um, a man who goes to hell and ends up sharing a cell with Hitler's dog, mm. um, which is quite funny. I mean, I think they're all quite funny. I mean, they're all sort of a little sort of sideways looks at death, but also at sex. Because mm -hmm. Tiny Deaths is really a translation of La Petite Mort, which is the French for an orgasm, mm -hmm. which I've never told my mother. I'd yeah. said to believe it's about death. Uh, I think she'd be embarrassed otherwise. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's actually it's doing surprisingly well, you know. I mean, it's very odd. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a fairly small press called Comma, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it's getting great reviews. I'm really proud, and it's selling. And I'm doing another one, I think, now. I'm doing a follow-up. And, I'm, and it's, it's a new lease of life. I'm really enjoying that sort of side of writing. Yeah. It's... Uh, Right. It's great. So yeah. yes, I mean, so anyone who's interested, um, please buy it. I mean, obviously, it's not Doctor Who, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't force anyone. Obviously, yeah. it's not canon, but it is. I think it's quite good fun. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really no, appreciate your thank time. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. That's great. Thank you. Wow, I really got to thank Robert Sherman again. It was um, really kind of him to do this interview. I, I really must explain that this interview was, was taken um, well after Gallifrey 19 was officially over. This was um, into the night. In fact, the reason why Ken wasn't on board was because Ken already had uh, jumped on a red-eye flight back to New York. But Robert Sherman, um, you know, we had asked him for an interview, and even though all the other guests that were still remaining in the hotel had um, retired either to their rooms or to uh, to the pub on the on 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 the ground floor. Robert Sherman uh, really held up and um, sought sought me out and uh, wanted to do this interview and had promised it and he was going to fulfill his promise and you know he didn't have to do that and it was you know at at this point of the game you know i figured you know let the get you know they've been talking about doctor who for three days straight here so you know i just wanted to give everyone their space but 
oh, he was willing to do it, and you know, and you know, the hour didn't show on on him, even though I may have seemed a little out of it only because I was tired, but it was still a pleasure and a delight to do this interview. And uh, once again, I want to thank Robert Sherman for that opportunity. He's a really great guy. And in fact, even after the interview was over, after the, the, I should say the, the, you know, the recording was over, he and I uh, continued to talk on and, and on various different topics. And uh, he's a really good guy. So um, hats off to Robert. And thank you so much. We'll be right back with more Doctor Who Podshock. What is this apparatus I'm attached to? It says on the label, it's a Polynesian witch chair. All I need to do is remove this peg and... Aha! You're off! You seem to have set me on a slow descent to the floor. Am I supposed to be scared? Shabney. Shabney Gura. What's that then? Well, no. Worse than that. You've maddened it! Oh, Mrs. Willow, your, your, your night dress seems to have come undone. Oh, good Lord. Christ alive! What are you doing in my toilet? Professor, how are you? I'm cold. If I'd known I was going to be offered as a human sacrifice, I'd have brought a coat. Christ, no! Dear God! No! The scary fires. The devil of Denge Marsh. Coming soon. It may be from another dimension, but it doesn't like the taste of hot steel. of Sotep. As if you didn't know, you're listening to Doctor Who Podshock. You just heard two promos. One is from The Scarifiers, or Scarifiers, which is a double CD set starring Nicholas Courtney and Terry Malloy, two Doctor Who veterans. The Devil of Denge Marsh, and it's a double CD available at CosmicHobo.com. Check it out for more details. And followed, following that was a entry into the Doctor Who Podshock, Doctor Who Podshock mashups, uh, which was an exposition that we were doing for um, that where listeners were sending us mashups of um, promos for us. And um, that was from Mike um, Fuller. So we want to thank him very much for that entry. Uh, there'll be more Doctor Who Podshock uh, mashup entries uh, being played in future shows. So stay tuned for more creative endeavors by our listeners such as yourselves and we really appreciate of all the time and work that went into uh creating all these delightful promos for us so uh next up we're gonna talk to dan harris he was at the he was at gallifrey 19 as well and ken and i had an opportunity opportunity to sit down with him and talk with him about this doctor who sea cruise that was taking place right on the heels of gallifrey 19 at the time so this is dan harris Okay, this is, um, we're here with uh, Dan Harris from the Sci-Fi Sea Cruise, who does an annual Doctor Who-themed sea cruise. And this year is no exception. Right after Gallifrey, we're at Gallifrey 2008. And right after Gallifrey, he's off with Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred. And um, who else are you going to? Uh, John Levine's going to be joining us and as John well. John Levine, Sergeant Benton. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're launching when? Well, there's almost no time to breathe. Uh, 
we're off, uh, I think, 11 o'clock in the morning, right after the convention. We, so uh, tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow morning. So you go literally from one, one convention yeah. to another convention, is off you go, which is beautiful. If, you're, if you've planned your, uh, planned your time wisely, you come and you do both things, get a little hotel stay in L.A. and get a chance to, to, to hop aboard the, the, uh, the ship. Because this will probably go out around the time that your cruise is already out at sea, what's the next one? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we do have some plans. This one this one was actually planned out a year in advance specifically to take advantage of that. We worked together with uh, Gallifrey. Sean's been wonderful. And between the two events, we were able to uh, do a lot more than either one of us could individually. Uh, we worked together on bringing both Sylvester and Sophie and their family members out, which I know I couldn't have afforded on my own. And I'm sure uh, it freed up a lot of budget money for Gallifrey to do for other things, other guests, other projects. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to do that. But uh, as you mentioned, we do plan ahead. Uh, for 2009, everything is uh, nailed down. We're doing uh, what we're going to think of as a spring break cruise, kind of. Uh, it's going to be going out uh, April 13th through uh, 23rd, a 10-night cruise, which is the longest we've done. We've done 10-night uh, cruises two times before, and I think that's about the max we can push it for a lot of fans' uh, vacation budget and money budget. Beyond that, it gets to be just too much to do. And you're departing from where next year? From here as well? No, we tried to move it around a little. I'm, I'm li I live in Florida, and we, try, we, we, we base a lot of them there. And what I like to do is I'll always be going back to Florida, and then we try to move around occasionally. This one, of course, is the West Coast. And uh, for 2008, uh, excuse me, 2009, it's going to be out of Fort Lauderdale round trip. And uh, we're Caribbean. going to be going yeah, into the Eastern Caribbean Islands, uh, Antigua, Tortola, um, St. Lucia, San Juan, Puerto Rico, a number of them, which incidentally, I think at least three of them were former or current British islands, which is kind of a nice tie-in for sure. Doctor Who fans. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, uh, because this isn't, next year isn't going to tie in with the Gallifrey Convention, do you have anything in mind as far as what you want to do? Do you think that far ahead as far as, okay, that's the next one, but we, you know, I want to be able to advertise it on, on this cruise and, and attract uh, some, some attendees? Yeah, definitely. I always, I always try to have, uh, you know, by the time one cruise sails, I always try to have the next one nailed down and ready to go, and that's been pretty consistent for quite a while. I mean, it's been going on so long. This is the 20th anniversary for us. Oh, really? Um, it's funny, there's a long history there. It didn't start out with the intention of being an ongoing series. Mm -hmm. The very first cruise we billed as a one-off, it was the Doctor Who 25th anniversary cruise. Mm -hmm. And it went on in 1988 on the anniversary weekend. And uh, our guests back then were uh, you know, current producer and production manager, Don, John Nathan Turner mm -hmm. and Gary Downey. And uh, we had uh, Sylvester McCoy with us as the current reigning doctor. Sure. And uh, Nick Courtney came with us to... Uh, wow represent the old period of the show. We actually, like any event, we had a whole situation where, you know, we had a couple of invited guests who couldn't make it a series. At one point we had, uh, I think at one point we had Fraser Hines coming and then uh, he dropped out and Nick took his place. But the eventual guest list we had that year was, was a great one because Nick was there for the old, Sylvester was there for the new, and John and Gary were there for the whole front office. And uh, it was great. And then what happened was, uh, about four years later, uh, JNT, who I kept in touch with, I've seen him at conventions and everything, just broached the subject on his own and said, uh, well, the 30th anniversary is coming up. Uh, have you got a cruise plan? And he kind of didn't have to twist my arm that hard. <laughs> yeah. sure so we planned another one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, going from uh, yeah. you know, the, the cold climate of uh, the oh, UK, yeah. you know, going on to Absolutely. the in the Caribbean. That's something I learned when we were running the old Omnicon conventions in Fort Lauderdale every February, that, uh, you know, it's... Best selling point we had was, you know, tropical location, weather. Location, yeah, location. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And uh, as I say, we did that. We did the second one for the 30th anniversary in 2003. And that one, John and Gary came back. And we had uh, Nicola Bryant and Sophie Aldred. And uh, after that, they became more frequent. We did, we did one in 1996 and in 97. Then we took a break, 99, 2000. It became almost an every year thing after that. Yeah. And... Uh, I would say next year is no exception. We're uh, we're so far have a confirmation from Fraser Hines that he wants to come and join us, mm -hmm. and there were a few other invitations in the wind that I can't mention at the moment. Oh, but yeah, that's understandable. I'm thinking, I'm thinking friends of his, but mm -hmm. uh, I won't mention names. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. All right. 
For, for this year's event, uh, it's taking place right after Gallifrey. Do you know if uh, those that have booked, are there mostly attendees here, or do you have any inkling on whether or not they're, you know, they're, they're making it? Has that benefited you? Yeah. yeah, actually, I'm sure it probably has. Um, I believe every single fan we have going is also attending the convention. And I know at least three of them that didn't even know there was a convention, they're just not connected in online fandom, that I told them, look, you're coming out this way anyway, get your plane ticket three, you know, three days early and have the con. Yeah. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who were gonna do the con anyway, and then found out about the cruise and decided, you know, the other way around that they sure. would extend their stay. Yeah. So I'm sure it's benefited both events. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think so, yeah. yeah. So um, we've, um, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with it, there's a new organization that's starting up, Hurricane Who in Florida. Um, I, I know that's gonna be in, in October of 2009, yeah. I think. Yeah, my friend Jared Cooper is uh, the driving force behind that. He's located up in the Orlando area. And uh, um, I don't have all of the details on that, but he keeps me apprised on a lot of the things. Um, I believe he's got his uh, facilities booked for uh, the actual weekend of Halloween, yeah. and uh, I know he is uh, very interested in the idea that uh, uh, there's a lot of things going on then that would be of interest to people who also like Doctor Who and sci-fi. I know Universal does their Halloween horror nights, and I think uh, I think fondness of a certain Gary Russell for coming over to attend the Halloween mm -hmm. horror nights may have been the impetus for that convention uh, coming in the first place, because uh, Gary and Jared have... Uh, been going back and forth for some time about uh, how nice it would be if, uh, if they could do something at that time, and I think Jared just decided, let's go for it. So, would you? I'm sorry. Would you consider coinciding a sea cruise with one if this becomes an annual event? You know, since you're a base out of Florida, mm -hmm. you know, maybe scheduling a future sea cruise to sort of what you're doing with today's event. Yeah, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, Jared and I have knocked a few emails back and forth on the subject, and as it turns out, uh, this particular year. I looked at a few dates and I wasn't able to find anything that uh, worked for me either date-wise or price-wise at that time of year. So I, I'm, I'm actually uh, pretty much half a year on the other side of him. So we're, we're, we're going to stand, you know, standalone events now. Mm -hmm. But neither one of us uh, has anything against the possibility of working together if, sure. it, uh, if it helps everyone out. Right. You have some past experience knowing that Florida is a very attractive spot for, oh, for inviting yeah. uh, guests from the UK. Absolutely. Like I say, the old Omnicons, they ran from 1980 to 1989. And uh, like I say, we, we used to do a convention the first weekend of every February. And our last convention, actually the last February convention was 88, we had, a, uh, we had an interim convention that ran every few years at Halloween time. And our last convention under that membership, under that, under that uh, uh, group of uh, con runners, actually was uh, the Halloween show. And... Uh, we kind of, the, the convention just sort of petered out after that. As as happens sometimes, a group goes for years and years and years, and people move on to other phases of their life. And, yeah. uh, you know, I like to call it convention burnout syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who run the shows just, you know, the way get on with their real lives, and uh, the show either gets passed on or it just, you know, just withers away. There was a little convention burnout there in the late 80s, you noticed, it, it, because oh, it, was all, yeah. it was an overload in all science fiction. You know, Star Trek conventions were at the height of their popularity. Doctor Who was at the height of their popularity. And all of a sudden, it just became overexposure. I think fans and organizers may have just burned out of it. Then we had the lull, and now, as I've said all over the course of the weekend, it seems like we're heading into the new golden age of conventions. That, that phrase. I couldn't agree with you more. It's definitely a renaissance right now. Yeah, it's great to see. You know, it's, great, it's great to be back, especially as my first round, I was a, a young fellow, and now I'm a grown man who can afford a few, you know, a few trips. So. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. I know you have to get back to your table and taking yep. some time out with us, and I know we had you on the show in the past, and we're delighted to have you back on the show. Anytime you want to come back and maybe shoot the, shoot the rag on the sea cruise, you're more than happy sure to. Thing. You Please guys are give us a follow-up on how this weekend's, uh, how this week's cruise goes, and then, yeah. and as your uh, guests for next year become, uh, you know, established. Once you've signed them up and they're they're confirmed, give us uh, the updates on them because we definitely would like Absolutely. to talk about. I'll make a point of it. Cool. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks okay. So much. Take care. This is Dave AC inviting you to CIA podcast. Live. We're not live.
now called Coldum in Audio. Samantha. Samantha. I sound like something out of a Terrorhawks. <laughs> Hello, Ian. Hello. Ian, I interviewed DG Italy. Hey. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Ready to go. Doctor Who <laughs> and Highlander. It. it was really good. But that is one of my other uh, little foibles. Could have done with some of those at the con. You know, and, uh, and, of course, I have to say, this is Ian in the groove. This is Ramana, too. And Benjamin uh, Elliott. This week in Doctor Who, guy. The green-skinned Orion slave girl. Wow. <laughs> I had a good thought, dude. It might have been even funny. Depending if the fanboy goo. Until you mentioned Wendy Pedbury. <laughs> Oh, and Ian's like, ah, Mate, let's get out of here. <laughs> he remembered my name. Uh. <laughs> with Jerry Doyle from Babylon 5. It's my other tagline. Doyle bought me a whiskey. Bye, everyone. Bye. Subscribe to CIA on iTunes. I'll catch us directly from TalkShoe. And welcome back to the feedback portion of Doctor Who Podshock. And with that, we have a review of David Tennant playing the part of Hamlet. This was um, reviewed by Marissa Freiro, and I want to thank her for uh, sending in this review. And without any further ado, uh, this is um, what she had to say after seeing David Tennant playing the part of Hamlet. I was lucky enough to be taking a family vacation to Britain at just the time David Tennant was starting his run in Strap It Upon Avon as the title character in Shakespeare's Hamlet. For anyone unfamiliar with the play, it follows Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark, as he tries to avenge his father, the former King of Denmark's death. Only Hamlet and his friend Horatio know that the old king was actually murdered by his brother, Hamlet's uncle, Claudius, who has since become the new King of Denmark and married Gertrude, Hamlet's mother. Hamlet spends the play trying to expose Claudius as the murderer he really is. First of all, I'd like to point out that I went into Hamlet expecting it to be awesome. I've seen David Tennant in a pretty respectable amount of television and film productions, and whether he was playing the good guy or the bad guy, being funny or serious, I've been blown away by his performances every time. But no matter how high my expectations were, and they were high, actually seeing David Tennant play Hamlet live, in person, exceeded my expectations by ridiculously large amounts. The most noticeable thing was his energy, that boundless energy, all the running and jumping and bouncing that pretty much characterizes the Tenth Doctor, was out in full force in his portrayal of Hamlet. Obviously, as Hamlet, he had his fair share of calm, serious scenes. It is a tragedy, after all. But when Hamlet was supposed to be energetic, boy, was he ever. One scene that stands out in my mind is the scene when Hamlet confronts his mother, Gertrude, about her marriage to Claudius. Hamlet goes to speak with his mother in her bedroom and David Tennant made use of every piece of furniture. He would hop onto and off of Gertrude's bed, once even almost sleeping clear over it, every time just narrowly avoiding her nearby desk. He did knock over the lamp on her nightstand during one particularly animated hop, but I don't know if maybe that was supposed to happen. His energy didn't just come out in his physical actions, though. He had plenty of opportunities to ramble on at light speed, again, very similarly to the Tenth Doctor, especially since he was using an English accent as opposed to his natural Scottish. Even when he wasn't speaking quickly, though, his energy came through. He just had an energetic air about him almost that made it feel like he wasn't speaking to the audience as a whole during his monologues and asides, but to this group of individual people who were in front of him. It was almost as if all of us in the audience were people that Hamlet knew. So when he delivered the famous to be or not to be monologue, for example, I didn't feel like Hamlet was thinking aloud to himself, but rather that he was sharing his thoughts with me and my fellow audience members. I've seen people deliver monologues that are supposed to be talking directly to the audience that felt more detached than David Tennant's delivery of Hamlet's thoughts. So needless to say, I was extremely impressed. I was also highly impressed with the range of emotions he showed as Hamlet. Like I mentioned earlier, I've seen David Tennant play a wide variety of characters with an even wider variety of personalities and emotions. From a perky, all-around good guy and taken over the asylum to a twisted psychopath in secret style and everything in between. 
Sometimes all of these different emotional highs and lows wind themselves up in a single character, like the Doctor, and even to some extent Casanova in the Russell T. Davies written miniseries of the same name. So I wasn't surprised that David Tennant could play a character like Hamlet, whose emotions are famously all over the place, or that David Tennant could play a character like Hamlet extremely well. But the ability that's impressive on screen was even more striking live. When Hamlet, in one of the very first scenes, is crying over his father's recent death, his misery seemed so real that I, at least, wanted to go on stage and give him a hug. It really felt like that person on the stage wasn't David Tennant, the actor, playing Hamlet, but Hamlet himself, who honestly was having a very horrible couple of months, and I felt bad that I couldn't do anything about it. On the other side of the coin, when Hamlet saw that his friend Horatio had come to Denmark for a visit, his happiness was infectious. I know that I was beaming right along with Hamlet, as were many of the other faces I could see in the audience. Not every actor can play such opposing emotions and make the audience react just as strongly to both, but David Tennant pulled it off easily. Also of note was the way that David Tennant was always reacting to the scene around him and throwing in little extras that made his character seem all the more real, like a well-placed comical wee as he was being pushed along the stage in a rolling desk chair. As an aspiring actress myself, I've been told numerous times how important it is to always be reacting to what's going on, even if you're just in the background, because that's what you do in real life. However, it's not uncommon to see the characters who aren't the focus of the scene just sort of standing there or maybe nodding absently. Not David Tennant, though. The few times that Hamlet was present on stage but not one of the characters to be watching, he was still as engaged in the scene as he was when he was the focal point. For example, during the scene where a traveling acting troupe puts on a play for the royal court, a play that Hamlet has edited to help confirm his suspicions that Claudius had murdered his brother, Hamlet's father, the audience, like the characters on stage, were supposed to be watching the play within the play. Looking over at David Tennant, though, I could see that Hamlet wasn't just looking at the play, which would have been very easy for David Tennant to do, having already seen it goodness knows how many times in rehearsals, but truly watching it. He would lean forward at important parts, shift in his seat to get a better view of the action, and smile and wince accordingly, all things that a real audience member would do. This may seem like an obvious thing for an actor to do, to behave as anyone would in real life, but still, it doesn't always happen when a character is in the background. David Tennant's constant engagement in the scene, no matter how prominent Hamlet was supposed to be in it, is one of the reasons that he is such a highly praised actor. All in all, this production of Hamlet was the best play I have ever seen, and one of the best productions in any medium that I have ever seen, and I'm not exaggerating. It was set in modern times, the jeans and t-shirts gave it away, but with the Shakespearean language. However, neither aspect took away from the other, which is due to skilled directing and acting. The entire cast was stellar, although Patrick Stewart as Claudius, Oliver Ford Davies as Polonius, and Edward Bennett as Laertes stood out especially to me. Still, though, it was David Tennant who most impressed me, and not just because I was already a fan. He is truly an extremely talented actor whom I can't praise enough, and as both a fan who enjoys his work and an actress who greatly admires it, I feel so lucky to have had the chance to see him in person. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you for sharing your insights of Hamlet's with David Tennant and Patrick Stewart as well. It's an interesting show, to say the least. I would like to have the uh, have the opportunity to see it myself. But um, at least I got a taste of it from your review. Thank you so much. And if you want to send feedback to Doctor Who Podchock, feedback is always welcomed. You can send it to Podchock at... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you send it to feedback at podchock.net. Anyway, we're going to wrap things up for this show. I want to thank uh, Robert Sherman, who was our featured guest review um, interview rather here, as well as Dan Harris, both from Gallifrey 19. It was a pleasure having you both on the show. Great interviews, both of you. And uh, of course, Ken Deep, who joined me on the Dan Harris interview. He was um, obviously, um, we were there together at Gallifrey 19 in Los Angeles. And 
Um, speaking of which, there new there, there's a, a couple new announcements as far as Gallifrey 20 goes, which is next year. Well, again, not even next year. It's only about as um, since it's already September now, so it's um, literally just months away, under six months, uh, under half a year, I would say, or just about a half a year. It's about 152 days to be exact at the time of this recording. So, uh, but I want to give you a rundown on some of the guests that have been announced. So there have been some new recent additions as far as the guest lineup goes as um, for Gallifrey 20, which is the 13th, 14th, and 15th of February 2009 at the Los Angeles Airport Marriott Hotel. And uh, the guest lineup right now, as it stands, it's Phil Collison, who's um, producer of Doctor Who from... Um, you know, 2005 through 2008, his first ever convention appearance. Nicola Bryant, who played Perry, will be there. Gareth David Lloyd from Torchwood will be there. Graham Harper, uh, a uh, director from the, you know, the what's some have come to known as the classic series, and as well as the new series, I just kind of kind of call, call it just the Doctor Who series, will be there. Uh, let's see, let's see, uh, we have Phil Ford, Keith Temple, Paul Carnell, who was with us at last year, and we had a grand time with him on stage at our live show last year at, um, Gallifrey 19, so we're looking forward to having Paul Carnell with us once again. James Moran will be there, who's a writer, uh, did The Fires of Pompeii, and also, um, wrote for, for Torchwood as well, Sleeper, Tony Lee, Laura, uh, Doddington, Kara Jansen and <laughs> Rob Sherman will be with us once again and um, who obviously was in this episode of Doctor Who Podshock Gary Russell by the way you'll find all this information on their website at um, gallifrey1.com slash gallifrey.php we'll bring you to the Gallifrey uh, 2009 web page which has all the guest lists there but the, the list continues on. Peter Angel, Angelides, uh, Simon Guria, Jason Hay Ellery, uh, David uh, Darlington, Keith Topping, David J. J. Howe, Arnold T. Bloomberg, Toby Haddock, and wait a minute. Hold on. That's odd. <laughs> well, we can assure you that Dr. Hugh Pachak is there. I don't know why we're not listed there with the other guests, but we are guests at um, this um, convention there. If uh, you scroll all the way down to the preview, we're, we're, uh, for what's in store, we're listed there, but for some reason we're not listed with the other guests. That's all right. <laughs> we're still a, pleasure, still a pleasure and delight to be there. So um, we're looking forward to being there once again. We hope that you're there. And uh, come and join us. We're going to have a great time there. We're going to be doing more interviews. We're going to be doing another um, onstage show, live show there. And hopefully, um, if we're lucky, we'll have James with us as well. So it will be a fantastic occasion. It's the 20th anniversary, 20th um, Gallifrey show. So it should be, a, well, regardless whether it is or not, it's going to, you know, it's going to be a great show either way, but it's going to be extra special because of that. And um, I hope to see you there. Get your tickets now. Get your hotel reservations um, in order. It will be here before you know it. Like I said, it's 152 days away. Uh, that's not much time, <laughs> especially if you're a time lord or a time lady. A time tot? Any time at all. Well, that's going to wrap things up for this show. Thank you once again for, as always, uh, subscribing to Dr. Hupachak, being a listener we appreciate your feedback. Again, that's feedback at podshock.net. Both Ken Deep and James Norton should be on hand for the next episode of Doctor Who Podshock. I realize that, um, you know, this is um, it's, it was a long gap between this episode and the last episode. I do apologize for that. There's lots of stuff going on here. And um, the end result will be beneficial to uh, our listeners. Um, we'll hope to have more product for you to enjoy so um some good news to look forward to some new announcements that will be coming very shortly that will be um of interest to our listeners here this is lewis trapani you can follow me on twitter at uh twitter.com slash lewis trapani and uh, um you can stay abreast on all my musings on the net that way and also the latest breaking news um for those that do follow me and got the latest news on that um, that sun story as soon as it broke and 
other um, little tidbits that that um, in between podcasts that are leaked out there on the Twitter sphere, if you will. All right, well, that's going to wrap things up. Cheers, everyone. Until next time, take care. You've been listening to Doctor Who Podshock by the fan-run Gallifreyanembassy.org and presented by Outpost Gallifrey at Gallifrey1.com. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next week for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. Opening theme by... Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com The Proceeding Art Trap production is brought to you by the Gallifrey Embassy and has been made possible by donations from listeners like you.